What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidya Tagawal, and let's get started. I was literally at a pizza restaurant bawling my eyes out over a glass of wine and a pizza. And she is saying, now write a list about what your next job's going to be. And I'm like, mum, leave me alone there. I need some time off. And literally the next day I got headhunted and said, you know, we want you to come and run an agency. But when I wrote that job with my the list with my mum, who, who's a great list believer and uh, did force me to write a list. I said that I want to work in startups, but I don't ever want to have to not pay a staff salary again, which was, you know, for many founders would identify with, um, you know, I, I did remortgage my house. I did um, invest heavily in the company beyond my financial means at that point in time. I did have times where I had to not, not pay myself for close to a year there were times where I sat down with my staff and said I'm really sorry we can't pay you this month but we will next month you know and it was incredibly stressful but very empowering but I wanted to stay in the startup world but be able to pay staff that was my thing and so here I am that's Kate Cornick and this is episode 86 firstly I'm excited to share that thanks to you May was our best month ever with over 4,000 downloads a very exciting brand partnership with the savings app Minky for a three-part series to help you build your knowledge about the future of the internet in Web3. And we also released episodes with guests from the worlds of journalism, venture capital, sport, and deep tech. In today's episode, learn about Kate Sunrise in the UK, influences from her parents and her grandma. This is a very candid conversation as Kate takes us inside many aspects, including how she accidentally fell into studying engineering how she grew out of her shyness, which I hope is encouraging for any of you in that phase. I asked Kate about how she built a career across academia, business and government, and what it means to build relationships in the pressure cooker environment of government, how she got the role at Launch Vic, and lots more. So that's enough for me, so over to Kate, please enjoy. Kate Cornick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, Matt Allen, Kate Dinon, there's so many people that have spoken so highly of you, so I think this is really cool to do. It might be nice to start with some fun facts. Um, can you tell us where you were born and where you live now? Yeah, so I was born in London in the UK, and now I live in Kew in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Mm. And what was your first job and what do you do now? So my first job was actually a horse riding instructor, or perhaps even before that, just a general dog's body at a riding stables in London. Um, but uh, now I'm the CEO of Launch Vic, which is the Victorian government startup agency. Very cool. And the purpose of this show, Kate, is to reimagine a high flyer, like we showcase relatable role models. Is there a high flyer in your life that you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of, of people. And I think particularly in the tech sector, I think in Australia, we're so good at celebrating our sporting heroes. 
but we don't really um, acknowledge our, our business leaders and people that are actually shaping people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So I would say there are countless founders out there that are just doing an awesome job that don't get the recognition they deserve. Yeah, I feel like that's the pattern of the show so far. It's either founders or people refer to their own partners or, or someone in their family, and that's the trend. So, <laughs> I'd love to love to zoom out, Kate, and talk about your sunrise, your childhood, and and your early influences, particularly the influence of family and your environment, like growing up in the UK. What are your memories? Yeah, oh look, I was really lucky. I had a very privileged upbringing and um, had a, a, a very um, loving family um at, in uh, in london i think um you know from my mother's side of my family i um i really got the sense of family we're very close knit i've got three siblings and my mum and my grandmother was a huge influence on my early life she was a real um you know, formidable matriarch of the family who had the most incredible upbringing, having been orphaned, had having had quite a tough childhood um, as an orphan, and then working her way up through having a family and then ultimately getting educated. And she actually did her first degree in her 70s in archaeology, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Um, and then my dad is, you know, very much a businessman. Um, he was very much part of the London finance industry and um, and still is, and I definitely got my work ethic from Dad, who you know believed very much in working very hard, and if you if you work hard, you can go where wherever you want. So I think the combination of Mum and Dad was a great balance. Probably wasn't the best thing for the two of them. They got divorced, um, like a lot of people. I grew up in a as, as um, the product of a divorced family, but I I definitely credit my Mum and Dad for for where I am today. And which part of London did you grow up in? Was it in the suburbs or was it in the inner city? It was in. It was actually in a suburb called Barnes, um, which is mm. a southwest London. It's not very far out of central, central London, only a few miles, but it was kind of like growing up in the country because we lived on the edge of a common land, um, which is mm. quite common in the UK to have common land. So I grew up sort of growing, running around acreage and just you know step out of the house and you were straight into grassy paddocks and trees and woods and spent a lot of time cycling and walking dogs and playing in the bushes and climbing trees and had a very outdoorsy childhood definitely and a mad passionate for animals and um still am have a menagerie at home um and so you know that was a really big part of my life and i think that's actually something that i hear a lot of particularly i'm a horse rider uh, i mentioned my first mm. job was in and around horses and i think i learned from a really young age the importance of responsibility from looking after horses and, and animals and um, that came from working in a riding stables and that was a really positive job I mean, my god it was slave labor I mean I don't think it would be legal <laughs> it was I think I was 11 years old I had to turn up at eight o'clock I left at six o'clock if you turned up late you weren't invited back the next week I wasn't paid um, and, and did my full day's work of starting off with mucking out the horses and then grooming them, saddling them, getting them ready for the rides, cleaning their tack, making their feeds up. And I think that really also taught me the power of work and working hard and just head down, bums up. And um, I think that's definitely something that I carry with me today. It sounds like you had a very balanced upbringing, like there was this wholesome, natural influence, but then parents who were work ethic and, and dad being in the in the business world. Would you say you're, that formed some of your influences growing up? Because I think talking to some of the previous guests, 
and even if I think back to my childhood, like I think family is a big influence, but sometimes it can be people outside your family unit as well, whether it's your school teachers or cousins or, or friends. Who would you say shaped your thinking of the world and your own confidence early on in those first sort of 10 years of your life? I think it was probably my grandmother and it was mm. it was the view that as a woman and a young girl, you could do anything. Like yeah. the world was your oyster yeah. and there was nothing you could not do. And I think um, that also came through my mum. It, it's funny because I ended up coming to Australia um, following my mum who emigrated when I was 18 years old. I was devastated mm. that she decided to go and live with my sister who was living over here at the time. And right. I didn't want to go. I didn't go, um, but ended up following her a year a year later and um, wasn't really planning on staying here, but ended up staying and ended up going to university. And I went to university in the most bizarre way because mum was determined that I was going to go to university. I didn't really want to go and... Um, I ended up having quite a big argument with her. I don't say this very often. And I, I got the VTAC guide that, and it, yeah, I threw yeah. it on the floor yeah. and it fell open electrical engineering. I said, I'm going to do that. You can't do that. You're not taking your job, your career seriously. I was like, I don't know. What does it matter? Wow. And and that's how I picked my degree, which is quite embarrassing because I do sometimes get asked. I actually ultimately got a PhD in electrical engineering and I do get mm. asked to go back to Melbourne Uni in particular, my alma mater, to say, can you talk to young girls about how you chose your degree? And I'm like, oh, my God, I actually had a bit of a temper tantrum and, you know, selected a degree that way. But um you know, I was quite scientific, so it wasn't completely left field and, and batty, but it wasn't the most sensible way to think about a career. But I really, like a lot of young people, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I, you know, if I was left to my own devices, I wanted to be a, a horse rider and, and train horses. Mm. But I was also very aware that that was not going to get me the lifestyle I probably wanted. So I had to do something. And, you know, I, I didn't aspire to go into finance and follow my father and and I didn't have other people that I could sort of look at and go, oh, that's the career I want, or I really, um, you know, admire that person. So it was really left to my own devices. I appreciate you sharing that story, and I and I feel like you're being very humble there because I think engineering is a very hard part of the world to be in, and and I think it's funny you you mentioned your mum didn't consider that a serious career in a way, but I think most people would say engineering is a very serious career and a very lucrative career. Yeah, I think she. I think she agreed. Engineering was a very serious career. I just think she thought my approach for selecting my degree was a little haphazard and not particularly mm. well thought out, which I, I do agree with. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you land where you land, and you know, maybe if I had gone off and done another sort of degree, I would still be in a leadership role. I don't know. Who who knows where I would have got? To. I probably would have had a very different path to where I have got to. But. Um, I think there was definitely some bits when I look back at my childhood, I was an incredibly shy child. And I think even until in my 20s and doing my degree, I was incredibly shy. Um, but my poor younger sister will tell you that I'm also incredibly bossy. And <laughs> I think in, internally to the family, I, I think I showed some leadership qualities quite early on that they will tease me about relentlessly, um, albeit that I didn't necessarily project that to friends and externally. So, you know, maybe I would have landed in leadership if I had gone off and done an arts degree or a science degree or a, you know, architecture degree, whatever it might have been. 
I'm glad you mentioned the point about being shy because I, I was very shy growing up. Like I worked in a restaurant when I was 14 and that, that really opened me up. And, um, and I think listeners would hear you and you speak a lot at events now and you speak on many different forums and they probably assume that Kate is just confident and you're born the way you are. So I'm really glad you share that because I think hopefully listeners, particularly young females or as you mentioned, people from sort of diverse backgrounds can be inspired by that. Um, maybe a question on that is like, how did you come out of that shyness? Like I mentioned, for me, I was working at the restaurant. My mom dragged me to the restaurant and said, give my son a job. And <laughs> I was serving tables and that literally changed my life. What was it for you? Like you mentioned horse riding, you're living just outside of London. Then you moved to Australia. That's a lot of change and yeah. a lot of influence. What yeah. shaped your sort of shyness to evolve? I think, I think for for a lot of people that are shy, there's an area that you've, you you do have comfort and you're not shy. And for me, that was in the family home. And it was at mm. the riding stables where I was the oldest girl of a group. So I was, I was mm. typically a couple of years older than all the other girls that had horses and rode horses. And so I sort of took on a bit of a leadership role there. So I was very comfortable in those environments. Um, at school, I was really not comfortable and I was re- really very painfully shy. Um, I think when that changed was when I did my degree at university and I was, you know, doing electrical engineering, um, I was less than 5% girls um, and, mm. you know, suddenly I turned up to a university where there's 95% blokes and I, I'd never been in a male environment. I'd been in a, you know, I'm, I, I have um, siblings, but my brother's much older than me. So, of course, I knew him mm. and his friends, but I didn't have peers who are my age. My younger sister, who's only two years younger than me, is female um, and I went to a single sex school and so you know going to a university and meeting a whole load of guys and um, you know realizing that they actually quite like me in you know a friendship way and developing really great friendships with a whole range of people from a whole different backgrounds I sort of came out of my shell and uni for me was a massive opening experience and um, I, I really enjoyed university and it was part of the reason I did a PhD was to stay at university longer, to be honest with you. It's, um, I just love being at uni. I love being a student. But the other thing I'll touch on that you said is about public speaking, because I do, so many people come up to me and say, you, mm. you, you do, you know, you public speak, how do you do it? I feel so nervous. And I remember when I was doing my PhD was the first time I really had to do public speaking and going to conferences. And I remember lying in bed the night before with this just sinking pit feeling in my stomach and not sleeping a wink, getting up on stage and like visibly shaking, giving public speaking, and then stepping off stage and having no visit, no memory of what it was on stage because it was so stressful. I actually couldn't really remember what I said. And I was like, well, what did I answer to that question? I can't remember what I said. Uh, just so nervous and so difficult. And, um, you know, if someone said to me right now, you know, there's a thousand people down the road that want to hear about the Victorian startup ecosystem. I'd be like, bring it on. I'm off there now quite happy don't mm. need speaking notes it, so I think anyone can public speak if you can open your mouth and you can talk you can get on stage and public speak and um, it's practice and it's getting out there and getting confident and the more I've done it the more I just it comes naturally but um, one thing I, a good friend um, also got very nervous and um uh, there was an incident that that happened at a conference. Um, it may have involved alcohol the night before. It may have been nerves. But whatever happened, he ended up vomiting on stage. And so whenever I get really nervous, 
I think the worst thing that could happen is you get up on stage and vomit. Am I going to vomit? No. So I can do this thing. So, <laughs> so I think it's just getting yourself in that frame of mind where you can you can see yourself through any situation, no matter how bad you think it might be. And public speaking can feel terrifying and feel really exposing. But what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You forget your lines. You take a deep breath. The words will come. People are very empathetic if you if you do forget your, your your words and and you don't know what to say and so it is just sort of having that moment to go you can do this you've absolutely got it you're not going to get up there and pass out you're not going to get up there and vomit you may not be the most hilarious speaker in the world you may not be someone wants someone wants to come back and see speak but you can still get up there and do this so it's not that bad so I think there's a lot of that kind of um, influence and I think that very much comes from my grandmother who you know goes back to you could do anything like uh, I, I feel that when I you know feel a little down or a little nervous I do think about my grandmother and the power that she gave us as as young women to just believe that the world was our oyster and there was nothing we shouldn't be able to do um, and give it your best shot and that's all you can do and if that's not very good on the day so be it. Mm, yeah, self. I think self belief is critical, and and hopefully females or any 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 human listening to this today is inspired by some of the things you've shared there. And and while you were saying that, it reminded me we had um, Holly Ransom on the show a while back. She's a master questioner, and she's met the likes of Obama and Richard Branson. And she talks about nerves being selfish. And and I said to her, I said, Holly, what do you mean nerves are selfish? How can they be selfish? And she goes, If you're thinking about yourself when you're presenting, you're selfish. You should be thinking about the audience and making the guests comfortable and then you won't be selfish because they're not here to see you they're here to see the guest <laughs> or, or the event if you're yeah. a panelist they're here to yeah. meet everyone not just you or they're here for the topic yeah. and i think that's a some people might say that's the wrong framing but i think it's a really good framing to trick your mind so again for listeners if that helps it's helped me a bit because i go okay it's not about me it's about the external world outside of me and i'm just facilitating that so um yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many books on it as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'd love to go into magic moments, Kate, and, and talk about, we've touched on some of these magic moments, but touch more on sort of some of the things people wouldn't see on your LinkedIn profile, or maybe you haven't spoken about it at events publicly, particularly around, you mentioned engineering and, and, you, and you were quite candid early on about your experiences there. What, what was your plan when you graduated from that engineering degree? Like, I know you talked earlier about success being horse riding in a, in a way when you were very, very young. And, and obviously, when you went into engineering, I'm, I'm assuming that sort of changed. What was success for you when you finished that engineering degree? And then I want to touch on some of your career roles as well, because you worked in government and you went yeah. into some pretty pretty intriguing roles, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can honestly say I didn't know. I got to the end of my PhD and thought, well, you know, I can be an academic. I got offered a, a role in, in academia and I thought, well, we'll give it a shot. And so I was very briefly a postdoc and I, I really um, struggled during that time. I didn't feel like it was what I wanted to do. And I was, oh gosh, I don't know, 26, 27 at the time and thinking I've done all this education, I've got these degrees, what the hell am I doing with my life? I don't really know. Um, and it was my brother-in-law who... Um, gave me a newspaper actually very pertinent this week because we've got the new Albanese government and there's lots mm. of adverts in the papers for ministerial advisors there was a a, a newspaper article for um, it was actually specifically for the shadow communications minister looking for a new advisor and I knew nothing about the Labour Party I knew nothing about politics but I knew a lot about broadband in Australia and I knew that our broadband was really 
diabolically bad. It was one of the worst in the OECD and we needed to do something about it. And I had a lot of knowledge from my PhD. And my brother-in-law said, apply for that job. And I said, oh, yeah, that would be interesting. Can you imagine me in government? And he laughed and he said, you've got to stand up for what you believe. If you don't believe that broadband needs to be improved, you've actually got to to get off your backside and do something and this will make it happen. Mm. And so he nagged me to apply and I did apply. And I, um, a very good friend of mine worked in the office at the time, um, now a good friend, I didn't know her then, mm. and she got my application and I spelled April wrong as my, on the date that I applied <laughs> for the job, which yep. spelling is not a forte of mine. And um, mm. she very nearly rejected me because I couldn't spell. And, um, but for whatever reason, they did put me in the shortlist. I did get in to be interviewed. I was interviewed by Stephen Conroy, the then shadow minister who went on to become the minister and I got the job. So, you know, that magic moment was my brother-in-law sticking that advert in front of my nose. And that job just, it, it gave me so much. And I'm so grateful for the experiences that Stephen um, Conroy gave me and the support he gave me, taking a punt on someone who was unbelievably politically naive. I knew a fair bit about broadband, but really did not know her way around government. And um, he taught me in so many ways. He taught me to be much stronger than I knew I was. I Working in that environment is a pressure cooker. And um, yeah, Stephen backed me. He, he backed my decisions. He it gave me a huge amount of confidence in the knowledge that I had. And um, I was certainly part of a team of people that went on to to um, help bring the National Broadband Network to life as a policy. And then um, I ultimately ended up working in and around academia and then MBN Co itself. But, but those early days of the very small number of people that were helping formulate the National Broadband Network, which has transformed Australia's telco landscape, is um, was a huge privilege and um, very lucky for that. So that was also a magic moment for sure. I've had a couple of people on from the government world, whether it be Michelle Wade from Global Victoria or Michael Rodriguez from New South Wales. He's a 24-hour economy commissioner. And one of the things they've spoken about is when they've gone into these roles, like Michael went from the world of media, he was the head of Time Out Media and he went into 24-hour economy at New South Wales. He talked about that the way you build relationships in government is quite different to the private world. And, and, and you went in as deputy chief of staff, which is no mean feat. That is a very people focus role and, and a very you've got to be sensitive to a lot of conversations and manage them uh, I'm sure how, how what do you think you learned in that role about relationship building particularly in those first three six months because I think that's something I'm really passionate about because that often separates the good from the great is that ability to build relationships make people feel that they can trust you and build your own sort of personal brand Without giving away any any sort of confidential secrets, can you can you share more broadly? Like, what are some of the processes or habits you've picked up, particularly from that role? Because, like you said, politics is such a different beast. Mm. I mean, I I don't see. I, I think ultimately you should be the person you are. It's I, I'm I haven't ever bought into having a personal brand and trying to be someone mm. different of, at work as to who I am at home. I'm probably a little messier at home than I am in my work life. You know, I look at my computer and personal accounts and things. And I think, oh God, I really need to spend a bit of time on that versus Lord Vic, mm. which I like to run like a smooth, well-oiled machine. Um, mm. But I think um, you know, you should always be nice to people. Always be, be the bring your best self to the table. And um, you know, in in government, 
you know, there were certainly times where I saw people implode, um, you know, ministers, bureaucrats, stakeholders, whatever it is. And you think, is that really the way to behave? And it's something that I pride myself on that I, I don't, uh, you know, you can get as cross as you want. If someone's made a mistake, it's a mistake. There's no point blowing up about it. If someone's done something really wrong, there's still no point blowing up about it. You just have to fix it. And whatever that process is, you get there. So I think, um, you know, I've always tried to be and create the work environment that I would want to work in. And that means, you know, having really great relationships with the people that you you, you work with. I think one of the things that working in government um, did teach me was the importance of power and, you know, working in and around a minister that I'd, I'd never met a minister before. Uh, technically, Stephen was a shadow minister when I first met him mm. um, and Kevin Rudd was the opposition leader. Um, but obviously I worked in, in government, so I met the prime minister. I met the minister every single day. Um, mm. You realise how power is played and, and the tool that it is. Um, and you realise how a lot of people can have their voice enabled in the power discussions because they're the CEO of Company X or they're, they're influenced by this person, um, part of a particular organisation structure, whether it's a lobby group or whatever, that opens doors. But then there are people who have power, who have power because they... they can lead in a particular way. So, you know, there are some phenomenal Australians that can um, command presence in ways that perhaps isn't because they can get their elbows out. It's just because mm. they are really, truly brilliant people. And you see how when brilliant people are in positions of power where they could use their elbows but don't have to, um, you just see things happen that you think, my God, that's how I want to be and I think the sort of moment in my mind that is most prevalent to that was the leadership of Telstra and so mm -hmm. running the NBN uh, project in, in Stephen's office and at that time it was quite a political project it hadn't yet gone through all the bureaucracy there wasn't a CEO and we were running the process the tender process with the department's help and consultants help to 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 appoint the uh then was a fibre to the node um, project. And, and Telstra was led by um, Sol Trujillo at the time, who had quite an interesting leadership style. It was quite American, and um, I've worked with lots of American leaders that don't lead that way, but it certainly was mm. very bolshy and very power and male and ego and dominant. And mm. then David Thody came in. And I remember the first yep. day I met David Thody as a lowly advisor. He didn't know me from a bar of soap, but he was so delightful and so pleasant to deal with. And I think, you know, David Thody is a leader who is just one of the most inspirational leaders I've ever seen in action. I never worked at Telstra, but certainly seeing him in and around the government and the way he he used and he didn't use relationships he invested in relationships and I think that's a real key it's not about who can you open the door for and muscle your way in and you know stroke egos to get somewhere but you really felt like David took an interest in you and um 
and, and he, 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 he invested time in developing relationships with people. I think one of the other really funny circumstances, which happened quite a lot, was I was very young looking until recently. And so I was sort of in my 30s, early 30s, and I could be mistaken. I was still asked for ID if I went out of places. Mm. And I'd go to, to, you know, every now and then someone would come into the office and you'd show them into the minister's office and get a seat. And they'd look up at you and say, could I have a cup of tea, please, or a cup of coffee? And I'd always say, yes, of course. And then um, Stephen would always make the point of saying, that's my PhD qualified, qualified deputy chief of staff. You've just kicked out the room. And you'd see these always blokes scrabbling over themselves to come and try and make a cup of tea with you, but wouldn't quite know how to make the tea, which I always found absolutely well. hilarious. And so you, you also learned how you could play the game in reverse. So whereas that might be seen as something that's a bit discriminative, it was. You know, they were just judging yeah. me as a young girl in the office and I was probably the tea lady, not the, the ministerial advisor. It was also a great opportunity to sort of help put people in their place so perhaps they wouldn't make the same mistake next time. And um, I, I do quite enjoy doing that when people do underestimate <laughs> people. And I think, mm. um, you know, being someone who looked very young was, um, was worked against me a lot, but I also learned how to make it work for me. I'm really glad you shared that answer, Kate. That's a very candid answer. You've taken us inside some of the <laughs> unknowns of that of that world. But I think your your point around yeah, I think that leadership trade. I've seen that where often the most senior person doesn't come across as a senior person because they're not loud and brash, and these situations can happen. I think the one story you probably heard of is the elevator one, right? People go for interviews and they in the elevator with the interviewer, and they don't realize, and they make a comment or they look very. Uh, they don't look put together and then they walk in the room and they're like, wow, I'm actually interviewing with Kate. I didn't didn't know she was the boss. I was in the elevator with her. I was in the taxi with her or on the train with her. Um, so I'm glad you, glad you shared. I think the other point is, your, your point earlier about the mentors you had is, it reminds me of a conversation I had earlier this week with a friend and she works in the hospital system and she just moved into a new team and and she was quite apprehensive about the, the senior leader because she said that senior leader is very demanding in meetings. And I said, in my experience, sometimes those people are demanding in meetings, but one in one-on-ones and in personal conversations, they're actually the opposite. They're actually very open. They listen. They're actually very supportive. And I said to her, I said, maybe go on with an open mind. This this lady might actually be different in one-on-ones. And, and she said, yeah, you're right. I walked away from that day. And she was awesome to me in one-on-ones. And I said, yeah, sometimes it's a sign of exactly to your point that dominance in meetings we have got to portray a certain certain figure would you agree with that especially now that you've worked across so many different facets of life that what people show exterior and what their interior is can sometimes be different oh absolutely absolutely but I I personally um try to be the same wherever I am and there are definitely mm. meetings that I go to where you know people you know, I still feel like I get underestimated because I'll sit quietly um, and, you know, there might be people thinking on this podcast, my God, can she sit quietly? But (laughs) (laughs) I I can and you do and people just, you know, you let things go and people don't really realise who you are and then, you you know, they'll say, oh, you know, you'll make a comment and someone will come to you and go, oh, so, you know, what do you do? And so you know, I'm running, oh, are you that person? And it's just kind of like that. I don't know what they were expecting, but I wasn't what they were expecting, clearly. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, at the same time, you don't need to be coming in all guns blazing, trying to prove yourself. I think sometimes it's the quiet achievers and getting places quietly can get you um, 
just as as much recognition as trying to be out and loud and proud and in people's faces. I, I often get criticised for not doing enough of that. And I think in today's environment mm. where, you know, it is sort of expected that you have a really strong social media presence and a personal brand and all the rest of it, which I know you did some research on me, you probably found quite hard on social media because there's not a whole lot no, of No, I, I do have some some things to bring up. I will bring them um, up shortly. <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a not a great trail there. But, um, you know, I think it's horses for courses. It's whatever's comfortable for you. I think... Um, you know, some of the most formidable people I've worked with have been um, very quiet in their leadership. And so, you know, the when something goes wrong, it's the disappointment sort of cuts through a lot harder than something that is, um, you know, a big explosion of anger. And, you know, I, no one likes being in an environment which is angry or frightening. So you should never create that environment. But there's also times where, as a leader, you can't just sit back. You've got to lean in and you've got to motivate your team. And, you know, sometimes you've got to direct your team and that can be really challenging and, um you know, it, it, you might be asking people to step over a mountain that they don't particularly believe in climbing, but it's what you know or you've been instructed to do at that point in time. And so you, people have different styles of taking people on that journey and, you know, different environments will suit different leaders. Um, I'm, I'm definitely in the bring everybody along for the ride leadership category um, and that can backfire. There's, there's pros and cons of every leadership style, but um, I think it, you know, I like to think that the people I work with enjoy the working environment and feel like my door is always open and that they that they're not frightened of me. I think Absolutely, I can't imagine you being frightening in, in a meeting, Kate. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure I hope your team agrees with that. I think just just on that, I wanted to move on to the next part, but it reminded me of something I want to share from my own experience. Like I, when I think back to early in my career. I was quite arrogant and, and in reflection, the reason that was because my insecurity came across as arrogance is because I felt so inferior. I tried to portray a, a sort of expression that I knew what I was doing. And then people would often tell me early in my career, like, we can't, we can't quite connect to you. Like you come across as like, you know, everything, you're too much. You just need to settle down. And only now when I reflect back on it, sort of 10, 12 years later, I'm like, yeah, that, that insecurity came out as arrogance. And, and listeners who would be tuning into this episode, I think would appreciate this conversation we're having. Would you have any counsel on that, uh, either through your experience or through coaching and mentoring people that are coming up the ranks where, particularly in today's world, where it's so competitive in tech or in startups or broadly in government where the young people coming up find it so challenging that they sometimes portray that insecurity yeah. in a way that's wrong? I think um, for me, it goes back to working hard because at the mm. end of the day, if you do a really good job and you work hard, I I, I don't believe you'll be overlooked. Um, and, and I know there'll probably be people out there going, but I do work hard and I am overlooked. And then I'd say, well, maybe you're not in the right place because you might not have the right people above you. And I certainly know mm -hmm. friends that, you know, do work bloody hard at what they do and aren't particularly mm -hmm. well appreciated. And I encourage them to change jobs because maybe that that particular working environment isn't the right environment. But if you are prepared to do the hard yards, I think you can get somewhere. I think um, when I was younger um i had a family member who who had difficult mental health issues and so i became aware of mental health at a very young age um and i think because of that i've always had quite a um empathetic understanding of of people and the challenges and the behaviors they're displaying and why negative behaviors 
often come from a place of insecurity. And that was something that was drummed into me quite young. And so when you do see people being particularly cocky, my brain instantly goes to insecurity. Like mm. they're being that way because they're insecure. Because if you've got nothing to be insecure about, you don't actually need to be cocky. So mm. um, I think you do see a lot of people being cocky or arrogant or angry or really demanding or whatever. And for whatever reason, they're modeling other behaviors, but it always comes back to a lack of insecurity because at the end of the day, when all of us are in our most relaxed state at our very best selves, humans are generally really lovely people to be around. And so that really cocky, arrogant person might be really good fun at the pub on Friday night and relax mm. and chill and just um, calm down. So I think what what's driving that insecurity? Is it that their workload's too deep? Is it that they feel out of their depth? What, what is it that's making them feel... Um, insecure. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to get somewhere in life and you are really ambitious, and I certainly was ambitious, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today if I wasn't ambitious. It's it's working really hard. And it's also taking the risks. It's, it's you know, not sitting in the job where you're sitting there and getting cross because no one's, you know, recognizing your brilliance or your hard work. If, if you're not being recognized, jump ship. And I, um, I probably was a little bit ahead of my time where, um, I remember my dad sitting down and saying to me, you have not spent more than three years in one job, Kate. You, you, are, you are a loose cannon. And if you don't start sticking at a job, you, you're just going to have a really dreadful CV. And um, mm. now, you know, you stick at a job for more than three years and people go, you've stayed in that job rather a long time. Why, you know, why haven't you moved? And I, I did move. I was prepared to take the risks when I was working in organizations that I wasn't happy. And NBN was one of them. I, I left. I was only there for, for 10 months. I, I didn't enjoy it. Mm. and um, there was a variety of reasons why I didn't enjoy it. I worked with some brilliant people there. I worked with some not so brilliant people there, but I knew that I wasn't going to get where I wanted to get in the team that I was in, so, so I left. And um, I think every time leaving a job can be really hard, um, but I also think when you, when you shut a door, others' doors open, and you do every mm. now and then just have to jump off the end of a something or other because new things will come for you and that might be realizing you need to go back and study it might be completely changing field it might be having the opportunity to reach out to some old connections and make some um make some um new acquaintances what you should never do is jump off and expect it to land in your lap you've always got to do the hard work so even if you're not physically working hard in a job and you take that plunge and you do shut the doors you do have to still work hard at what your next thing is going to be so i think that's something that has certainly filtered through my life really good advice i feel like people when they listen to this kate might you know inbox of dms might fill up on linkedin and twitter so I hope you're ready for that. People <laughs> seeking your advice and, and counsel. You, you mentioned earlier, Kate, that I couldn't find a whole lot of information about you online. That is true. But but I think your LinkedIn profile has enough. And there's a few LinkedIn references that you've got a couple of years ago. And, and one of them says something along the lines of, Kate is someone who intrinsically understands the business world and the requirements within it, but also understands the academic world. Could you Could you unpack what that means? Well, I think it means that I've worked on both sides of the ledger and I, I'm, I'm someone who's worked in, I think when you look at the community and work, you've got academia, you've got business and you've got government and there are people that, you know, spend their entire lives within the business world or their entire lives within the academic world or their entire lives as a government bureaucrat. 
and um, or, or you know, in and around government. Um, but they 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 are three very different worlds, and uh, you know, you mentioned before about how people navigate through government. There is a particular way that you can navigate through government and, you know, the relationships, um, while I like to treat all relationships the same in terms of, you know, I don't give government any more, you know, government bureaucrat any more time or, um, you know, treat them any different or a minister different from how I would treat this interview. You know, if, if you're in the, if you're with someone, you should be present with them. It's not, you know, yeah. saying this person's important, I'll give them all my attention. And, you know, Joe Bloggs over here who's, you know, ping me for a meeting I'll just give them you know I'll sit there on my emails and because I can't be bothered listening to them so I think um, understanding how those worlds work is really important um, and I, I guess I have worked in all three uh, and in business I've done both small business running my own startup and, and list, taking it through to an ASX listing as well as big business at NBNCO where there were you know hundreds of staff and so seeing all those different environments means you do get a understanding of how they work and you could sort of see how they how they butt butt with each other and also how they can work with each other and so um i think from university and industry i really see the potential i believe really deeply in our university system it it gave me my career um but also i think the um you know, we have phenomenal researchers and we give so much credence to business and the importance of business, which it, it is absolutely important. It's economy, it's it's making sure people are catered for is, is critically important. But if we lose sight of that blue sky research, we end up losing an innovation potential 30, 50 years down the track. And the, the example I'll often use is Wi-Fi. You know, Wi-Fi was created by Australians. Mm. It was created in the 70s, the research when it first started. And if it wasn't for Wi-Fi, how the hell would we survive COVID? So, you know, it's Correct. it's we've got to ha allow that really big thinking. So having the university sector supported is really critically important. But you also, it can't sit in isolation of industry. So you've got to have the two connect with each other. And industry engagement is really important for the university, but it can't be the be all and end all because if we lose that blue sky research and we don't let business do its thing and we try and force everything together too much, we won't get what we want. We get short-term outcomes rather than really long-term transformational projects. And so I think having had the experience of working on different sides and you can throw government in the mix and I can see that as well from government side, you can see the pros and cons of everything. And, you know, I have people that come up to me and go, oh, my God, you work in government. How can you do that? <laughs> Government's slow. Government's bureaucratic. It's dreadful. Get rid of government. Well, that's all well and good until you understand what government's there for. And I can tell you, if government was taken away, we'd all be complaining. We, would, we wouldn't mm -hmm. be very happy if we lived in a completely unregulated society. We might be sitting here thinking, oh, we don't pay tax and we don't do that. But you don't go down to your Medicare and, you, you, you know, you may not have your grocery working as effectively as you like and your energy might be, you know, disrupted in some way, shape or form. So it's really easy to chuck rocks and say it's bad and it needs to improve. Everything needs to improve. We should always, always be trying to improve ourselves. But it, if you can understand the pros and cons, you can start to see how it comes together. So I think that's one of the things that I've been really lucky in my career is that I have lived all three experiences. And so I can, I can understand the business world and how it should engage with the universities. I understand why it's really hard. I understand why it's hard from the business side and I understand why it's hard from the university side. 
But when the two come together and work effectively, it can be unbelievably powerful too. So it's, um, I guess it's just having that opportunity to reflect and, and um, see the good and the pros and cons and opportunity in everything. And I guess one could say all those experiences were perfect preview to your launch week role, which you started in November in 2016, because um, it is exactly to your point, you're working across so many sectors and you're deeply connected with business and, and government and, and, and so many other bodies in between. C- can you share maybe, like we, we know the success you've had in the role, you've been in the role for almost six years now and, and listeners can Google your name and, and see all the metrics and see all the stats and, and the the kind of growth you've had through it. Can you can you talk about the early days coming in? Uh, I know I, we talked about this with the chief of staff role, but if we talk more broadly, when you came in in 2016, where was LaunchVic at? Like, what was your mandate for the first year? And, and what are your reflections when you think back, kind of, to your first year now that you're six year, almost six years in? Yeah, I mean, it it was it was a funny start because I I got headhunted for the role, and I got headhunted for the role the day after. I effectively got kicked out of the startup that I'd spent four years growing, kept raising oh, wow. capital for, listing on the ASX. Um, and it, it was a move by our investors, our, our shareholders on the ASX, um, pulled what's called a 249D, um, which is removal of the chairman. And I said, if the chairman leaves, I leave. And, and we ended up both leaving, which was... Um, really sad and when you put so much hard work and so much passion into a company I just I was devastated um but I did really I truly believe in the power of startups and the power of technology and and desperately wanted to stay in the sector but I also desperately needed a break and I remember my mum had taken me out for dinner and I was literally at a pizza restaurant bawling my eyes out over a glass of wine and a pizza and she was saying now write a list about what your next job's going to be and I'm like mum leave me alone there. I need some time off. And literally the next day I got headhunted and said, you know, we want you to come and run an agency. But when I wrote that job with my, the list with my mum, who's a great list believer and uh, did force me to write a list, I said that I want to work in startups, but I don't ever want to have to not pay a staff salary again, which was, you know, for many founders would identify with, um, Mm. you know, I, I did remortgage my house. I did um, invest heavily in the company beyond my financial means at that point in time. I did have times where I had to not, not pay myself for close to a year. I, there were times where I sat down with my staff and said, I'm really sorry, we can't pay you this month, but we'll, we will next month, you know. And it was incredibly stressful, but very empowering. But I wanted to stay in the startup world, but be able to pay staff. That was my thing. And so here I am at Launch Vic, which, you know, I am able to stay in the startup world and I am able to pay my staff every every fortnight. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky to be leading this organization. It is the longest job I've had by almost, you know, 100% uh, now. The first years when I look back, I came in with my own experience of running a startup, um, which was incredibly helpful. But I, I see how much the sector has moved on and it's really very exciting to be sitting where I'm sitting and seeing companies. You know, when I was, I, I, I think we, we raised close to 9 million at the company that I was working at or leading. And, um, uh, you know, that that was a really big thing. It, we effectively did a Series B at that company and you now see companies mm. doing a $100 million Series B mm. and it's just so exciting that people can actually grow companies really big big and impactful tech companies from melbourne without having to go to silicon valley i think is is hugely exciting 
going back to launch Vic in its early days, it was really challenging. It's always, you know, just like a young startup, you're trying to find the right staff. Um, you know, you're trying to sort out what's gone before, which was interesting because we'd been in the department up till the time I arrived. So extricating the organization from the from the government was really interesting. We had challenges um, with our board. When I turned up, there was a board of, of um, I think it was 13 people for a month and, and dropped back to 11. And there was a staff of two of us. And so, you know, when yeah. you're managing managing a board of 13 people and two staff, it's it can be really, really difficult. So, um, you know, like any company that you're trying to grow or anything you're trying to grow, it's painful. It's really painful. But it's also, you know, I love doing that. I love growing companies. I love seeing things accelerate. And um, we've been on a great journey here at Launch Vic and we get to be custodians and and support this really beautiful thing called the Victorian startup ecosystem that's going on to secure our future as a state. And I really believe that. So it's, it's very exciting. Mm, and I think, the, I think the impact that you and your team have had an example of Startmate. I think a lot of people might not know is about the early support he provided Startmate. Like I was listening to an episode recently with James Tynan, who was the one of the early CEOs at Startmate, and he talks quite candidly about how LaunchVic supported Startmate's ambitions and helped them open an office in Melbourne. And I think you're seeing now that kind of flywheel effect where, and I think that's something I think you spoke about when we chatted prior to recording, you train the trainer. I, I think that's a really really nice framing in terms of yeah. what your impact is? Yeah, I, I mean, we, we are lucky to be sitting here at Launch Vic, but we're not the ones doing the hard work. We, we fund mm. people <laughs> who do the hard work. Mm. And so, you know, just like any investment portfolio, you see people that you're just wildly proud of and you think, oh, my God, I, I had a little bit to do with that journey. And when I say I, it's very much we as the Launch Vic team. Because yeah. it's, it's not me. It's brilliant people that work with me that help do that. But... You, you can see how you can influence the outcome. We also have people that have come along and run grants and haven't been successful for whatever reason, and that that's okay. But we've done enough things and we've taken enough risks to back some awesome groups, and, and Startmate would be one example that we really very proudly fund. And we know that there are so many companies that have been through Startmate. They may not realize what LaunchVic has done um, mm. to support them on their journey, but I look at companies that go through Startmate and get the support that they need to grow on and, and grow and, and develop. And you see them go through their journey of coming in with, you know, a couple of young, bright founders with really brilliant ideas to turn that into a company and then see them go through the VC community and get capital raising and, you know, raise millions of dollars is just so exciting to see. And it's, um, it's, it's really great to be a part of that journey. Startmate, I'm using Startmate as an example. There's lots of others, Scalata, MedTech Actuator, mm. Boab AI, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you, you get to be a tiny part of that journey. It's it's the Startmates and the Scalatas and the MedTech Actuators and the Springboards and others that, that actually roll the sleeves up and help these companies. Our, our job is to help them. I want to ask two questions, Kate, before we get a final sprint. I'm, I'm conscious of time. I think the first one is that a lot of listeners of the show are founders or they work in the startup ecosystem and, and to your point earlier where when you think of funding you think of VCs or you think of sort of angel investors but there's also grants and there's a lot of government support out there as well and I know I know launch Vic have a process at the moment for for an accelerator program that you're wanting to fund over the next few months so if anyone's interested please do apply how would you encourage founders to look at that in terms of especially you when you were a founder yourself you've been through that journey and you know how hard it is 
because it is almost that sexy world now where people want to have the VC badge on their on their startup website because they can show the VCs back them. But I almost feel sometimes government backing is even bigger because government gives you international access and Australia's got such a good reputation in the in the world. How do you look at that in terms of founders differentiating between government grants and other forms of funding? Yeah, I, I mean, founders should look at whatever source of funding they can get. And the grants are fantastic because they don't take equity off the table. I think, like everything, there's a pro and a con. And so the pro is you don't take equity off the table. The con is you can get very wrapped up in becoming a grants delivery organization, and that can mm. constrain your innovation growth. And so I see a lot of founders that can be a bit anti-venture and think, oh, we, we don't really want that. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, a thousand butterflies, whatever the saying is, of the butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon, someone else is doing it over here. Mm. Um, and there's no startup that is working in isolation. There might be, there's always competitors. And so if your competitor in Silicon Valley, London, Tel Aviv, Barcelona, Berlin is VC-backed and has just got $10 million and can double their headcount, you've got a challenge keeping up with that. So I think for a lot of companies, the VC pathway is, is a really powerful pathway because it can underpin that growth. Equally, there are companies that do really early, great early sales. They don't need that. That's awesome because you get to hang on to your equity. That's the holy grail. And, you know, we've got Invato down here in Victoria, which is probably the ultimate Australian bootstrap startup. Um, and, you know, that is just awesome for those founders. But what you don't want to do is lose the race. So if you're putting all this energy into a company, you really need to, to do the very best you can for the company. If that means venture, it means venture. If it means venture debt, it means venture debt. If it means grants, it means grants. But you do need to go up in eyes wide open because, you know, we, we give out lots of grants at LaunchVic. We're very rigorous about what you do. You promise X, you deliver X. Um, there's not a lot of wriggle room. And so it doesn't allow for that innovation to pivot, to really, you know, rethink product, rethink service, to go in a different direction. One thing I will say that you did touch on is the power of government to open doors. And certainly for my startup, the Victorian government got us our biggest client, which was Virgin Healthcare in the UK. If it wasn't for the global offices of the Victorian Trade and Investment Organization, we would never have met that connection. And um, we would never have had our largest customer. And, you know, that customer allowed us to go and do a raise. And, you know, it was it was all very exciting. And um, the, the power of government to connect people, particularly internationally, cannot be underestimated. And I really encourage startups to go and talk to government to see how they can help when they're ready to export because there's a, there's a huge amount of resource there. Um, and certainly from my experience, it made my life so easy as a founder to go in and, 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 and set up um, a base in the US and the UK. And probably vice versa as well. Often government funds back VC funds or accelerators. So having that relationship first can actually have a dual benefit that they can make an introduction to a VC or a start mate or a Absolutely. accelerator body. Yeah. Mm. And that goes to my comment, you can't live without government. You know, we do need them mm. and, and government plays a really important role. Um, and so, you know, it, it is knowing knowing how it works and where, where it works, when to dial up, when to dial down is, is really critical. Definitely. We've got a few minutes left, Kate, so I'd love to close out with a rapid fire round. Um, I'll ask you a question and if you can give me a 30 or 60 second answer. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Non-financial investment. Um, I can think of one very quickly. I, I bought myself a COVID present, which was ironically a horse, um, an unbroken okay. horse. And for someone who works really hard and has has probably not 
completely cracked work-life balance. Um, <laughs> it, I've now got an outlet and a hobby, which I haven't had in that way for a long time. And I'm reconnecting with my sort of dreams of a teenager. And I think that is incredibly powerful to have something outside of work that is um, so good for your mental health. So, you know, great exercise. And for me, just my absolute passion and makes me bounce out of bed every day. So I, I think for me, it, the best investment I've made recently was a little horse. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's, that's definitely a unique answer we've had in the show. So that's cool. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Uh, yes. Um, I think you should always be learning. Um, on on my horse front, there's a lot I want to learn mm-hmm. in, in how to break a horse with classical dressage. Um, but it, personally, I think there's always growth. Um, one of the things that, um, you know, keeps me up at the moment is um, probably investments. And we've at Launch Vic done a lot of work around investment funds through the Alice Anderson Fund and the Victorian Startup mm. Capital Fund and continuing my growth in understanding the investment journey and how to be a really good IC member is mm. is really important because I'm sitting on, uh, I'm observing one and sitting on another IC and, and, and um, making sure that I'm up to date with the, the latest trends in safe notes and convertible notes and how safe notes convert to equity and all those mm. sorts of things are, are really, you know, sound straightforward at the surface, but can be really complex. So continuing to learn around investments is, is something that I'm definitely pursuing at the moment. And last one, is there a person, a quote that inspires you? Oh, gosh. Um, I think there are, there are lots of people, I can't think of a quote off the top of my head, but I can definitely think of of people and i think mm. um you know some of the, the the most inspirational people are people that have come from really interesting backgrounds and managed to do amazing things with their lives and a really left field one i just at the moment absolutely love miriam margulies the actress i think mm. her life story is amazing the way she presents herself to the world is amazing and I think the way that she shows leadership in the world is very challenging at times, but but really um, quite inspirational. So I think she's someone that I'm listening to a lot of podcasts about her, her life story, and it, it's a little left of center. Um, but then, then there are people like um, Michelle Obama and, you know, the more traditional people that you think, mm-hmm. wow, they've done amazing things. I think um, the teal independence in the Australian mm-hmm. environment, whether you agree with their politics or not, I think what they've done is amazing. And I think Kathy McGowan, as the person who's helped lead that revolution um, to activate the women's vote and really help communities control their destiny is really inspirational. So not a short answer. There's lots of people, but it depends what you want to be inspired about, whether it's politics or arts or startup sector, whatever it might be. Definitely. And it probably goes back to your initial point. You live in Kew. I mean, we know what's happening in Kew at the moment with the Teals and, and how that's sort of changing dynamics. So absolutely super, super inspiring and a good note to end on. Um, that's the finish line, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me and, and love doing this with you and, and wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Really great fun to do. Thank you. There you have it. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and be 1% better. And to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, just subscribe or follow us on your podcast app and on LinkedIn or Instagram.